Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in Montana again this week, Montana Part 2. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We are indeed, we are indeed. I'm excited to be back in Montana. I am. Montana's a fun state so far. I agree, I agree. Uh, their laws are kind of kind kind of, of on the crazy side, I would say. That's what I like to hear, so I'm good on that. <laughs> I only have a smattering of them because there were just, you know, some really, really good ones. And um, I'm going to start with one of the weirder ones. Okay. In Montana, it's against the law to have more than one alarm clock ringing at the same time. Wow. Okay. So multifamily households are going to be in a lot of trouble. (laughs) Yep. 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 Sleep in the same room, everyone. Sleep in the same room. Just get like two or three king size beds, push them together, and there you go. Everyone will be nice and toasty warm in the winter. (laughs) When you need it in Montana, so. (laughs) Um, This one I thought was interesting, and I feel like it has some, it probably has some practical, or used to be practical reasoning behind it. In Montana, the law is that if you own a billiards hall, the pool tables must be visible from the street. From the street? Okay. Yeah, That one needs explanation for me because I'm not quite so sure on this. Yeah, the only thing I could think of is like to make sure, like to make it easier for, for law enforcement to make sure people weren't gambling on pool games, maybe. That's true. Yeah, my experience with billiard halls is that there's also like a lot of drug dealing going on. Yes, I was just going to say that. I feel like billiard halls have like a pretty bad reputation in terms of like drugs and gambling and stuff and illicit behavior. Yes. And I mean, I'm I'm someone who absolutely loves pool. But yeah, definitely, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Let's see. This one was kind of terrifying, and I'm sure it's a, a very old remnant from the early territorial days. But if a group of seven or more Native Americans are gathered together, it's considered a raiding or a war party, and it's legal to shoot them. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. That is not a good law. <laughs> Again, I'm like, I don't know if that's actually still on the books. That's like a holdover from the days of yore when they were a territorial uh, government. Yeah. That's, wow. That's insane, Montana. I know that is kind of insane. Slightly more insane, though, is this next law. For some reason, people have put a sheep in the cab of their truck as if that's not bad enough. In Montana, it's illegal if that sheep is in the cab of your truck without a chaperone. I don't know if it's another chaperone sheep or a person who has to chaperone them, but I just know it's illegal. So you need a sheeperone. Yes, you need a sheeperone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. Thanks, Montana. That was weird. <laughs> oh, well, as much as I love sheets, uh, sheets, sheeps, sheep, sheep, sheep. It's just, yeah. yeah, my God. Okay, my brain's not working. Um, I did not see any sheep, but I went apple picking over the weekend and I saw goats and I love me some goats. They have weird little eyeballs, but I love them anyway. I know. I like goats too. They have weird eyes. They're so cute. Yeah. I like the fainting and screaming ones too. Yes. (laughs) I am. I am also with you on that. Let's see. Moving on from sheep. Now let's talk about ladies in Montana to wrap up our weird laws. I'm afraid. (laughs) in montana it's illegal for married women to go fishing alone on sundays how scandalous even more scandalous unmarried women aren't allowed to fish at all it's illegal oh my god yes all right so before you touch any pole at all you better be married (laughs) 
Yes, that's Montana, quote unquote, looking out for the ladies. Wow. Thanks, Montana. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't have done it without you. Um, but now they're going to look out for the husbands with this other law that I see here. It is a felony for a wife to open her husband's mail in Montana. And, and in my head, I'm like, isn't it like a felony for anybody to open anybody else's and mail? It is. It is. Because that's, yeah, that's not good. Although, um, you know, my mother um, opens my mail all the time and my father's mail. And then my father opens my mail because we have the same name. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a big old mess. Please don't arrest us. I won't tell the authorities if you will. Well, that wraps up my weird laws. Uh, I hope you enjoyed them and you're excited about not being a woman or playing billiards in Montana. I don't I don't know. Yeah, apparently. God. But if you're looking for a career as a sheep I know where you can go. Exactly. I would love to be a professional sheep-a-rone. sheep is a little too close to sheep which makes me uncomfortable. It is. <laughs> I don't know how I'd feel about sheep like, Although if I had a pet sheep, I'd probably name it sheep <laughs> I did have a pet sheep in um, the game Stardew Valley, which is like a farm simulation video game. And I named it sheep mm. That's a good one. Next time you have it, you can have sheep and sheep I was going to name one Brittany Shears, but the name was too long. <laughs> Brittany Shears. That's pretty good. Well... I guess I can dive into my story. I know last week I talked about how I love the, the like how Montana State nickname is the Big Big Sky Country. Yes. Well, I actually found a location called Big Sky, and that's where my story takes place. Very nice. I like the sound of it already. All right. So we are going to head to Big Sky, Montana, which is located in the southwestern part of the state. It's about 45 miles outside of Bozeman. Uh, Big Sky has a population of about 2,300 full-time residents, and it straddles 120 square miles, both in Gallatin and Madison counties. It's an unincorporated community, and it doesn't have a town government, but it does have a ton of visitors and a healthy tourism industry due to its close proximity to Yellowstone National Park and its beautiful natural landscape. Big Sky is located in the area of the Northern Rockies that includes an alpine valley that boasts small rivers and several ponds that channel snow runoff from the large mountains in the area. The valley or quote-unquote meadow area, as it's known to locals, offers a lot of outdoor activity like what you'd imagine in Montana, hiking, fishing, hunting, whitewater rafting, and lots and lots of camping. The other area of Big Sky, called the quote-unquote mountain area, hosts two large ski resorts, Big Sky Resort and Moonlight Basin, and boasts one of the, quote, biggest skiing in America with over 5,800 acres of terrain to ski. Cool. Uh, Those aren't the only two resorts in the area, but they are the two largest. I feel like Montana is mostly made up of resorts, so... (laughs) Well, many visitors come to the resorts in Big Sky during the winter months to enjoy skiing and snowshoeing, snowmobiling, even dog sledding. Apparently, it's very, very big in Big Sky. The area also offers ample warm weather activity like golfing, mountain biking, and zip lining. Plus, Big Sky hosts a variety of annual festivals throughout the year, ranging from music festivals like Big Sky Bluegrass and Music in the Mountains to the, quote, biggest week in Blue Sky, which is the week that Blue Sky PBR is in town, 
Uh, PBR stands Possibly for- Possibly ribbon? <laughs> That's what I thought until I looked it up. I was like, ooh, beer festival. No, no. <laughs> it is a professional bull riding showcase. And okay. Yeah. Aside from the bull rider, they also hold like a, an associated like charity golf tournament. They do a community barn dance, have an art auction. And all throughout the week, there's live music and vendors, lots of food. So it's basically like a big fair that's built around this bull riding showcase. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I'm like, all right. All right. I don't know how I feel about bull riding, but okay. Aside from the visitors, the 2,300 full-time residents of Big Sky are spread out pretty far. The population density in the area is only about 7.4 residents per square mile. This super low population density is exactly what attracted Don and Dan Nichols, a father-son pair of survivalists to the Big Sky area in the early 1980s. But it was the thriving tourist industry that attracted Bozeman native and elite biathlete Carrie Swenson to a summer job there in 1984 and into the path of the Nichols men. That name sounds really familiar. I might know your story. This is the story of the abduction of Carrie Swenson. Okay. Yeah, I think I know this. Oh, I think I know this. Okay, please tell me because I want to see if it's the one I'm thinking of. It might be. There was a TV movie made about this story. So oh, there was? Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'll get to that. Don't you worry. <laughs> so let's start off with Carrie Swenson, shall we? She was born in 1961 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She's one of three children born to Bob Swenson, who is a physics professor at Temple University, and Janet, who is a nurse. I know those places. <laughs> I know. Th- I've been to those places. <laughs> yeah. <gasps> In 1970, Bob accepted a job as the head of the physics department at Montana State University and relocated the whole family to Bozeman. And it turned out that Montana really suited the Swenson family. Janet was an avid hiker. She ended up joining the local ski patrol, and she encouraged her children to make the most of the natural scenery around them and explore outdoor activities. Bob was also into enjoying the great outdoors, and he helped teach his kids how to fly fish and camp. Uh, As a teenager, Carrie was really drawn to cross-country skiing, and she excelled at the sport. One of her biathlon teammates said, quote, she was just a fantastic skier, just kind of took your breath away when you watched her ski because she had such beautiful technique, end quote. Given her passion for cross-country skiing, Carrie was drawn to biathlon competitions. Uh, Eden, are you familiar with the biathlon? A little bit, not a whole lot. Okay, I was in the same boat. And I looked it up as part of my research for the story, and the biathlon is a really unique sport. It grew out of the Scandinavian military training traditions. That yep. requ- Yeah, so it's the one that requires really skillful skiing, but also shooting, too. Yes, which is just such a weird combination to me. It very much is. It very much is. Because it's kind of asking uh, biathletes to do two different very two very different skill sets to achieve like a high rank in the competition. Yeah. During a competition, the biathletes ski through a cross-country system, and the total distance is like divided up in either by two or four shooting rounds. Uh, usually, there's a round where they lie in a prone position and shoot, which is what I always remember seeing. And there's another half of the rounds where they'll stand and shoot at targets. Now, depending on how well they do as part of their shooting performance extra distance or time is added to their overall skiing distance time. And the biathlete who has the shortest total time after these additions or subtractions wins. It's just such a weird, weird thing. 
It but is. Thank you, Scandinavian peoples. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, okay, cool. The most challenging aspect of biathlon really is mastering that steady breathing technique that you need when you're coming off of basically a cross-country race on skis and then trying to steady your breath as you hold a rifle and try to fire accurately. Um, a yeah, lot that's got to be tough. Yeah. A lot of the athletes are like, you're being able to steady your breathing and like kind of like take a deep breath and fire is one of the things that they train to do. Like yoga breathing is really big for, for biathletes apparently. That makes sense. Now, when Carrie Swenson was starting out in the late 70s, early 1980s, the biathlon was still very much a male-dominated sport. It had become an Olympic sport for men in the 1960s. However, it wasn't an option in the early 1980s for women to compete at the Olympic level in the biathlon. But Carrie Swenson was among a number of women who were selected to compete for the U.S. for the first time in the first Women's Biathlon World Championship which was held in 1984, early March of 1984, in Chamonix, France. That's really cool. Yeah, this is a super big deal. Um, some of the articles were really, really interesting. The uh, U.S. team members describe how they got to France, and everyone was super welcoming and really excited to have women as part of the competition. They went to a lot of events. They got to dance with like ambassadors at balls, and it was just like a great time. And the other great time for the U.S. team in particular was how well they performed. So pretty much everybody who was familiar with biathlons were really surprised that the U.S. did so well. And the one athlete who really stood out was Carrie Swenson. She was a standout performer on the women's team, both in her individual competition and also in the U.S. relay team, which she participated in. So the relay team was made up of, of Carrie, Julie, Nehem and Holly Beatty, and they won the first medal of any U.S. biathlon team, men or women, in history when they took the bronze medal by just three-tenths of a second. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Ladies are doing it for themselves, apparently. Huh? And the U.S. So great. As long as they're not fishing and unmarried, we don't care. <laughs> exactly. Now, this historic win really ratcheted up interest in the biathlon as a women's winter Olympic event for the 1988 Calgary Olympics. But the old male guard around the biathlon at the Olympics stonewalled attempts to get it added. So it wasn't until the 1992 Winter Olympics that women were allowed to compete at the biathlon at the Olympic level. Now, after the 1984 Biathlon World Championship, Carrie, who was about to turn 23, she needed to support herself in the off season over the summer while she still trained. So she took a summer job at the Lone Mountain Ranch Resort in Big Sky, Montana. It seemed like a pretty sweet gig. She lived on the grounds, waited tables in the dining room, and was able to train in the outdoors surrounding the ranch about six days a week. Uh, it was the perfect place for her to train for the biathlon, uh, to quote Carrie herself, quote, whenever I had time off, I would go train, running, hiking, roller skiing. I was very familiar with all the trails in the area, so I would just take off and go running by myself or with my brother, end quote. Her brother also worked at the ranch that summer, I believe, too. On the afternoon of July 15th, 1984, Carrie set out on one of her runs. In a later interview, she described the turn of events that would change her life. She said, 
It was probably about halfway through my run and I came around over a little rise on the trail and in front of me, there were these two men standing there. I knew there was something different about them and they had on dark clothing. They were, you know, camel clothes and they were dirty. I knew like the instant I saw them, they were not good people. Okay. That's creepy. Super creepy. (laughs) Uh, The two men were 53 year old Don Nichols and his 20 year old son, Dan. The two have been living in the woods in and around Big Sky for several months. They would often do this where they would shun society for months at a time, hiding out in the mountains and surviving on squirrel meat and poached livestock. And they would always have caches of canned beans hidden around the areas where they were staying and camping. But they missed female companionship and hadn't encountered any ladies who wanted to live off the grid with them in the middle of nowhere, surviving off squirrel meat. So, Well, I mean, they paint such a beautiful picture. Who would be able to not want to accept that? Baby girl, I can get you all the squirrel you want to eat. Oh, squirrel, my favorite. Be still my heart. (laughs) Now, I guess this was more of a problem for 20-year-old Dan than it was for his father, uh, I can only imagine you're 20 years old and you probably want to have, have you know, female companionship in your life. So yeah. Dan tells his dad, I would love to go. I, I need a lady. And Don decides that if he wants his son to stay with him in the mountains, he's going to kidnap a lady to be Dan's bride. So as Carrie approaches on the trail, she tries to jog around the Nichols men, but one of them steps into her path. According to Carrie, quote, So I decided just to ask them, is this the trail that I'm on? Is this the trail I'm looking for? And they didn't really answer me. So I said, okay, thank you. And I tried to, tried to get by him. And that's when he grabbed my wrists and wouldn't let go. The old man told me that they wanted to take me into the mountains and keep me for a while to see if I liked living in the mountains with them. I started to scream. I tried to get away. And that's when the old man hit me in the face and knocked me to the ground and was lying on top of me. At that point, he instructed the other man to get him a rope, end quote. Oh, I don't like this story. I know. It's it's pretty horrible. You're just out for a nice run, getting your exercise in. And you encounter these two grubby camo wearing men from the in the woods. But it gets unfortunately worse. So the Nichols March carry at gunpoint back to their campsite. They secure her to a tree using a length of chain that they wrap around her waist. At one point, Don Nichols explains to Carrie that, again, he wants her to stay in the woods with him and his son to be a wife for his son. According to Carrie, she begged them to let her go. And when she started telling them, please let me go, uh, I'm not the girl for you, Dan Nichols responded, quote, no, I want to keep you. You're pretty. I want to keep you, end quote. Ew. Yes. Yeah, no. Mm-mm. mm-mm. Ugh, okay. Ugh, no. Hmm. Carrie, for her part... I don't like this. Yeah, Carrie, for her part, tries, you know, to tell them a couple things that might make her less appealing. She tells them that she are, she's already married and that she deeply loves her husband and she wants to go back to him, that sort of thing. The men basically ignore her and keep her chained up. As evening falls over Big Sky, Carrie's disappearance at is noticed at... Lone Mountain Ranch. She was scheduled to work the dinner shift that that evening, and when she didn't show up, her coworkers immediately became worried. They knew she had gone out on a run, so they went to the trail she usually ran to and discovered her car. It was happened to be in an area where grizzly bears had recently been spotted. So 
Her co-workers immediately contacted her family, and they began to organize a search party. Well, I hope some grizzly bears come and eat these fuckers. I know. Uh, as the volunteers uh, get together, they split into groups of two or three people. They start going into the woods following the trail that they think Carrie went on a run on. Meanwhile, her dad, Bob, found a local pilot who is willing to assist in an aerial search, and he is in a helicopter flying over the same trails looking for his daughter. As night fell, the searchers continued to make their way through the trail, concentrating on an area that was actually less than a mile from the campsite where the Nichols were holding Carrie. Uh, according to her, a later interview, she said, quote, I could hear everybody searching for me. I could hear people yelling my name. I could hear vehicles, motorcycles. I heard a plane overhead, and I kept telling them that these people were looking for me. And they kept saying, if anybody walks in here, well, we're going to shoot them, end quote. Around midnight, the search is paused. And then when first light's, light comes the next day, the search parties gather and continue looking for Carrie. One pair of volunteers consisted of 36-year-old Alan Goldstein, who was a retailer turned local rancher and happened to be one of Carrie's really good friends that she had made that summer. And the other was 30-year-old Jim Schwalbe, a landscaper from Wisconsin. These two guys got paired and they started their search. Around 7.30 a.m., as Jim neared the campsite, Carrie started shouting because she heard Jim rustling in the, the brush, basically. And she started yelling at them to him to stay away because her captors were armed and would shoot. Uh, this panicked Don Nichols, and he told his son to shut Carrie up. Dan walks over to her with his pistol drawn, and instead of you know covering her mouth or gagging her, he decides to shoot her point blank in the chest. Oh, God. Now, Jim, who's very near the clearing, hears the gunshot and Carrie scream, and it becomes basically a honing sound for him, and he bursts into the campsite. He, he sees two men standing over Carrie, who's bleeding from like what's what everyone described as a sucking, gaping wound in her chest, and the four of them kind of stand there and like look at each other, and he said that he noticed that Dan Nichols was nearly crying, repeating that he hadn't meant to hit her. The older Nichols then aimed a rifle at Jim. And that's when Alan Goldstein arrived in the clearing and tried to rush to Carrie's side to check on her chest wound. Don fires. And instead of hitting Jim, he actually hits Alan in the head. Oh God. That gives Jim enough time to duck back into the brush and then sprint away to get help. Wow. So now Carrie has a chest wound. Alan has been shot in the head at the far end of the clearing. The Nichols decide they got to make a run for it. So they break, break down their camp, pack it up, unchain Carrie, and then abandon her to bleed out. Oh, Alan Gold how gentlemanly. Yes, yes. Alan Goldstein is already dead from his head wound, and he's laying at the edge of the clearing. According to a later interview, Carrie said, of all, all of a sudden, the gravity of my situation really kind of kicked in. I was like, oh my gosh, I've been shot in the chest. And that's, and then that's when it started to hurt. It hurt to breathe, it hurt to move, excruciating pain. Taking a breath, I really couldn't breathe very deeply. That was the first time that I was really unsure that I would survive. I tried to move and just any little movement was excruciating, so I didn't move much. I slowed my breathing down, so I took shallow breaths, 
but I was able to move air more slowly and I would kind of like meditate. I would take air in my nose and then out my mouth and try to calm my breathing down as much as possible. And that probably saved her life. Exactly. She said, if I fell asleep, I might have died. So I stayed conscious as much as I could. So basically her training as a biathlete is what's actively helping her save her life. Yeah. And that's just chilling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Um, that's this is like I found this story so so compelling just because of all the all oh, the, yeah. the small little details and it's just you don't yeah and I I had never heard of it either which is the other thing I was like how have I never heard of this so Carrie's laying on the ground bleeding and she she's she's left there for about four hours the bullet that entered her chest went in just under the collarbone and thankfully exited below her shoulder blade it did collapse her lung but it exited her body. Those breathing techniques that she learned in biathlon did actually keep her stable until rescuers arrived. Uh, she was airlifted out of the woods and transported to the nearest hospital by helicopter when she was found around 11.55 a.m. All in all, it had been little over 18 hours since her abduction. Oh, wow. Okay. At least she wasn't gone that long. I'm trying to find a positive here other than the fact that she lived. Well, it also kind of goes to show you that, like, when people say the first 48 hours are, like, the most important, like, they truly, truly are. It can be a matter of life and death, so. Now, while Carrie healed in the hospital, an intense manhunt for Don and Dan Nichols commenced. Over the next four to five months, the media story surrounding the Nichols grew from depicting the men as these loners who spent large amounts of time in the woods poaching and scavenging in And then they transformed into these mystical survivalist mountain men skilled at covering their tracks and evading law enforcement as the manhunt dragged on and on. Every journalist had their own take on the non-conformist philosophy that drove the Nichols men. And a lot of the story around them was very much mythologized. Um, According to a great article in the Daily Beast, Barbara Walters called their lifestyle, quote, Almost romantic. Uh, okay. <laughs> Baba Wawa. And then Esquire painted them as quite, quote, some rowdy mountain men trying to snag a wife. And I'm like, for real? The- okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, to make matters even worse, at the same time, the media is depicting Carrie Swenson, who is an elite world champion athlete and competitive sharpshooter, as a white woman in peril. Like, one news outlet even went so far as to describe her as, quote, a proper belle of Bozeman, the perfect flower of the new West. What? Yeah, just puke. Just puke. That's okay. They didn't mention, you know, like, you know, star athlete, blah, 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 you know. Yeah. It was very much like, oh, yeah, she's a a biathlon. But anyway, she's a really pretty white woman. And she's white you want to save her exactly exactly like it, it was the point where like and carrie herself like didn't want to really do any interviews she was like had didn't want to tell talk to anybody in the media because of just how this story kind of spun out of control as law enforcement was looking for them yeah i'd say uh now so the real the real story the reality was that the Nichols weren't these rugged frontiersmen living off the land Uh, They were hiding in one of the most vast unpopulated landscapes in America. 
So it kind of made sense that it would be hard to find two people in this huge area of Montana. And to make things even more of a trial, the seasons were changing from summer to autumn and then eventually winter. Uh, And when they talked about what philosophy drove the Nichols men, well, there really wasn't one. Don Nichols had a pretty decent rap sheet that included selling drugs with the intent to distribute, resisting arrest, tampering with evidence. He basically went into the mountains to get the hell away from his legal troubles. Okay, well, I mean, you know, where else would you go, I guess, but... Well, that, and then the other part is, like, his son Dan also had a rap sheet. He was known to be a thief and a burglar. Okay, yeah, and I could see why they'd want to be off the grid if they don't want to get, you know, arrested and put in jail. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So it doesn't really come as a surprise to me that when the really harsh Montana winter set in, in December of 1984, the Nichols started venturing closer and closer to populated areas. Basically, they would break into homes or cabins and steal supplies and whatever else they could grab. And that's where, that December, a local sheriff caught up with them and arrested them. A side note, that local sheriff ended up writing a book about capturing the Nichols, and it was actually turned into a TV movie three years later, the 1987 movie, The Abduction of Carrie Swenson. It starred Tracy Pullen, a.k.a. Mrs. Michael J. Fox, as Carrie. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Michael J. Fox. I like that. <laughs> uh, M. Emmett Walsh as Don Nichols, and it was directed by Stephen Gyllenhaal, a.k.a. Jake and Maggie's dad. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You can watch it on YouTube if you're ever so interested in, but it's a lot about, about police work and not so much about what actually happened to Carrie. Now, well, that's kind of dumb. Yeah. Uh, she did write a rebuttal book to this uh, two years later with the help of her mother. And it was just her story and, and how what she experienced in the kidnapping, which is also kind of a way to recapture the narrative. But nobody made a TV movie out of that. Of course not. Why would they? Mm-hmm. So anyway, back to the Nichols. After their arrest, they were tried separately in Virginia City, Montana. Uh, Carrie testified at both trials describing her kidnapping ordeal and stating quite clearly that Dan Nichols shot her in cold blood. Dan's defense lawyer, a guy named Steve Unger, tried to depict Dan as the victim of his father's mountain man delusions. He told the court that from the age of five, Dan was repeatedly, quote unquote, kidnapped by his father and forced to live in the mountains away from society. I have a quote from the lawyer that I found in the New York Times, which was interesting. Um, as part of his defense, he said, quote, what it means to be a mountain man was pounded into Danny's head. He lived, Don lived his dream on the mountain and he desperately wanted Dan to do the same. He dragged him along as a victim. Huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I guess if you need a defense, that's, that's one of them. Yeah. I, I have a lot of problems with this, but okay. Me too, Eden. Me too. Uh, As the trial wrapped up in September of 1985, both men were convicted. Don Nichols was convicted of kidnapping and aggravated assault, as well as murder for the killing of Alan Goldstein. He was sentenced to 85 years in prison. Dan, meanwhile, was convicted of kidnapping and assault and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Dan Nichols was released on parole in 1991 after serving six years out of his 10-year prison sentence. 
He was arrested again in 2011 on drug charges and spent another of course. Four, yeah, spent another four years in prison from those charges, but he has been clean since he was released from prison in 2015. Uh, Don Nichols came up for parole four times, and each time the Swenson family and their supporters vigorously opposed his release. As they probably should. As they should. Uh, but uh, in April of 2017... Don Nichols, then aged 86, was granted parole after serving 32 years of his sentence. He is officially released from prison on August 23rd, 2017. As for Carrie, she focused her energy on recovery and training. She went back to competing in biathlon events over the next couple of seasons. Her last competition was the Holmen Kolmen Ski Festival in Oslo, Norway in 1986. While it seemed to most observers that Carrie had made a full recovery, she placed fourth and she personally felt that the injuries she had suffered as part of her abduction had really taken a toll on her performance and she felt it was time for her to hang up her skis and her rifle. That's upsetting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does kind of, it's like those are your prime years as an athlete, really, like your your early mid-20s and yeah. that was when she was basically, you know, recovering for months. That's true. From a gaping chest wound. Like, oh. Yeah, you don't really come back so well from that half the time. No. It's a miracle she survived. It is. It truly is. Um, after she retired from biathlon, she went on to go to the Colorado State University Veterinary School, where she graduated in 1990. Um, after working for five years as a small animal veterinarian in uh, Springbone Steams, Colorado, she actually returned to Montana and she's now, as of 2019, a practicing uh, veterinarian in Bozeman. That's um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I think for her, like, she, you know, had this horrible experience. But um, there's a great uh, podcast episode of 30 for 30, uh, which is an ESPN podcast. And it's more closely related to to the impact of, of her legacy on the biathlon world it's all very sports oriented but there that is where a majority of my quotes from, from carrie came from um it was a really cool episode and you know she talks a lot about how while she physically healed from this she's still dealing with with trauma and she realizes that you know trauma isn't something that you fix or get over it's something you live with and get better at managing so that's kind of her, her take on it she's still an avid outdoors woman and still you know gets out on the trails and stuff but there is kind of this heartbreaking uh, part where she talks about, you know, when she goes to a trail now, she'll always count the number of cars and the number of people she passes on the trail because it's yep. just something that makes her nervous when she goes out running by herself. So that makes a lot of sense. And I don't blame her whatsoever. And PTSD mm -hmm. is a real thing and it definitely happens. And I mean, why wouldn't it? I mean, she went through a terrifying ordeal. Oh, my God. Yeah. But yeah, so that is the story of the abduction of Carrie Swenson. Don't believe the TV movie, y'all. The real story is much more intense. That was crazy, and um, I'm just I'm just glad that she's okay. Yeah, is this the story that you remembered that you thought you knew? No, no, it's not. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's 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 cool. I'm glad then because I thought this was a very like I, I was shocked when I was reading about this. I'm like, how have I never heard of this? Like, yeah. A famous athlete was abducted. Yeah. <laughs> what? Exactly. 
my sources for this story were Wikipedia, visitbigsky.com, ESPN.com, 30 for 30 podcast, uh, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the Seattle Times, and the Daily Beast. All right. Thank you, Nicole. Um, I guess we shall take a short break and I'll be back with the news and my story. And we're back. We're back. And I have a news story for you. It's an oldie, but a goodie. I remember hearing this one a while back. I don't know why I didn't think of doing it sooner. This one comes from cbsnews.com, and the headline is, Missing Woman Finds Herself After Intense Search. (laughs) I mean, talk about sisters doing it for themselves. Right, yes. So, a woman who went missing in Iceland over the weekend was reportedly found safe and sound by herself. According to the Reykjavik grapevine, a not-so-missing woman, a tourist, even participated in the intense police search over the weekend near an Elger Canyon in the country's southern volcanic region. The mix-up apparently occurred when, during a sightseeing trip Saturday, the woman broke off from her tourist group and changed clothes, the Reykjavik grapevine reports, citing Icelandic news website mbl.is. When she returned to the bus in a different outfit, the rest of her tour group did not recognize her. Then when a description of the missing person was offered, Asian, in dark clothing, and speaks English well, the woman seemingly also did not recognize the description as of herself. So she began to assist the others in searching. (laughs) I'm sorry, but it's so ludicrous. It's like... It is. Ugh. When I first heard about this, because I didn't know, I'm like, was she drunk? She was probably drunk. But no, she wasn't drunk, apparently. Um, The Coast Guard had been preparing a helicopter to help in the search, the Icelandic Review reports. Oh, God. Hours later, around 3 a.m. Sunday, the search party finally realizes that, alas, the woman they were looking for was with them all along, and the search was called off. (laughs) Chief of Police in Volsvolor, Svin K. Runarsson, told mbl.is that the woman simply didn't recognize the description of herself and quote had no idea she was missing end quote (laughs) girl didn't you know you were missing what girl how does this happen (laughs) yeah that's pretty amazing yeah i I love that i just god see this is what i imagine because that was from 2012 and i remember hearing about it when it happened Mm-hmm. I thought it was like some drunk girl and she's like, oh my God, someone's missing. Okay, I'll look too. <laughs> like, that's what I imagined in my head. I managed to be like some drunk college girl. But no, it's even funnier. <laughs> it is even funnier. <laughs> but that is my news story. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that one. I had never heard of it. So I clearly am out of the loop when it comes to weird Icelandic news. <laughs> yes. Apparently I am not for some reason. Who knows? <laughs> I know what's up in Iceland all the time. (laughs) All right. So I will dive right in then, I guess, to my scary, spooky story for y'all. My story for this week takes place in Butte, Montana. Butte is the county seat of Silverbow County, which just seems like a weird county name because I'm not used to them being more than one word. I don't know if (laughs) if you feel that way too, Nicole. I guess. I mean, that's a good point. I never thought about it, actually. (laughs) Yeah. It just something about it sounded like weird when I was reading it, and I think that's what it was. 
It's the fifth largest city in Montana with a population of 33,503 and an area of 716 square miles. So it's certainly huge area wise, which it's just insane because like that population isn't that incredible. Like it's right. A pretty average or below average, you know, city size. But then that 716 square miles is huge. Yeah. But that's, that's Montana for you. That is Montana for you, where the sky is big and the population's not so much. Exactly. So Butte was actually established as a mining camp in the Rocky Mountains in 1864. It was known for its many mines, which have a lot of copper, among other minerals. It was even one of the largest boom towns in, Amer- in the American West, producing over $48 billion worth of copper ore. Oh, dang. Yeah. On June 8th of 1917, the city of Butte was actually home to the largest hard rock mining accident in recorded history. It was called the Spectacular Mine Disaster. And what happened was they were putting in a fire safety system by installing an electric cable into the Granite Mountain Mine. Mm -hmm. And that cable ended up falling. Oh! When the foreman tried to take care of this, he ended up starting a fire with his carbide headlamp by accident. He accidentally ignited the oil-soaked cloth insulation on the cable. It lit everything up in that shaft. And as we talked about way back with your one story that I think I titled A Boring Tunnel, we know that burning shafts are no laughing matter. That's correct. And what do fires need to survive? Oxygen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that fire sucked All the oxygen from this place, causing 168 miners to lose their lives, mostly due to asphyxiation. Holy God, that's terrifying. Yes. There's a memorial to the miners at the site of the incident, and you can read some of the notes from the workers there from my understanding. Uh, Let's talk about something cheerier, though. Now, when I think of the Irish, I tend to think of Boston, right, Nicole? Oh, yeah, for sure. Boston is like, what is the whole like Southie with the weird little pseudo Irish accents? (laughs) Yeah. But did you know that Butte is actually home to the largest Irish population in the U.S.? Really? I did not know that. Yes, I certainly did not know that either. (laughs) Butte is also home to the Berkeley Pit, which, Nicole, you did talk about in our last episode. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's that open pit copper mine that's basically an acid pit. It was also home to a nice little brothel that is the subject of today's story. So this is the tale of the Dumas brothel. Remember when I said my story was going to be sexy, Nicole? You did say that. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know it was also going to be a little French, maybe. Oh, yes. So I'm, I'm super excited about a haunted brothel. I honestly don't know entirely why. But I just find brothels and bordellos to be a fascinating part of history for some reason. But I, mean, I will no get no judgment to my here, sir. No judgment here. Yes. So this brothel is, of course, no more. But the building still exists, and it's at forty-five East Mercury Street in Butte. It's now a museum, which is pretty cool, and you can learn probably a lot more there than I'll be able to tell you on this podcast. It's a building made of red brick. It's two stories. And while not a bad looking building, it's pretty nondescript, which is probably what you're looking for in an ideal brothel location. Yeah, probably. I mean, you got to stand under the radar even in good times. Exactly. But before I dive deeper into that, I want to tell you about Butte's history with sex work because it's pretty interesting. 
Okay. So Butte's sex work scene seems to start with a street called Park Street, which is in the northern part of the city. There were these women whom they called the Ladies of the Line or the Park Street Girls. This area, from my understanding, was pretty vacant and filled with a lot of tents and shacks, as this was the 1870s, and this was just pretty much a mining town, as I stated in my intro. However, buildings did eventually go up, and since what these ladies were offering was kind of a private thing, Mm -hmm. it was best to move along and find somewhere else to conduct business. So they went to the southern part of the city, which became the Red Light District. By the mid-1880s, almost every building on Galena Street was offering sex for money, whether that place be a brothel or some of the other places on the street like saloons, gambling dens, and dance halls. Because of how prevalent prostitution was in that part of Galena Street, people around town began calling it the Twilight Zone, which I kind of love for some reason. (laughs) One of the biggest places like this in the area was called the Casino Theater, which was a triple threat because it was part dance hall, part saloon, and part brothel. Ooh, it's where you go for all your vices. Exactly, yeah. One-stop shopping. (laughs) (laughs) So by this point in Montana history, if you had money, you probably owned one of these brothels. There was even a man by the name of Lee Mantle who owned one, who became a United States senator. Oh, dang. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about these people, no. Our little slice of wacky sex paradise all started with two French-Canadian brothers named Joseph and Arthur Nadeau, along with Joseph's wife, Delia, whom they named the place after because her maiden name was Delia Dumas. Okay. And they all started the brothel in 1890. Okay. Okay, so it sounds like prime time to get your foot in the door for prostitution. Oh, yes, Absolutely. So, in its day, this was seen as one of the three classiest places of its type, along with the Hotel Victoria and the Windsor Hotel. And both those names do sound quite fancy. I agree. That does seem, if you're going to class up your prosiop, go with something classic. Exactly. Go with something that seems like, uh, I guess, English royalty, because we've got Queen Victoria and we've got the Windsor family. (laughs) Like a queen might live there, not just a bunch of hookers. One thing that you have to keep in mind during this story is that prostitution was completely legal at this point in American history and was not made a crime until 1910 and I believe not until 1915 for every state because all these evil devil women of the night were tempting the good God-fearing Christians into sin. Yeah, so that and venereal diseases. Well, that too. The really interesting thing about the Dumas brothel, sometimes also called the Dumas Hotel after a while, is that it stayed open until 1982. Wait, what? Like 1982, yes. Uh, That seems very late. Yes. It's like, okay, that's all right. Quite the family business? (laughs) Yeah. So even though prostitution was completely legal at the start of this place, the reason that the new brothers decided to name the brothel after Joseph's lovely wife is because it was still frowned upon, and he didn't want his owning the brothel to reflect poorly on his, quote, legitimate businesses. Mm-hmm. Real nice, Joseph. 
Like uh, my wife can be a slut. We don't care. Just name it this. She doesn't you know, use like, that name anymore, anyways. <laughs> yeah, so horrible. But anyway, let me tell you, this place was majorly popular with the local miners because where else were they going to let loose and have a good time? Also, this place was tricked out. They had these nice vaulted skylights and a balcony on the second floor. And in 1912, they built a single-story addition, which led right to what they called Venus Alley, Mm -hmm. which was the hub of the red light district at the time. It was also later called Piss Alley, which is just, yeah, very visceral image that you get there. Yay! (laughs) Yeah. Piss Alley. Also, if I'm understanding what I read correctly, a lot of the prostitutes worked out of what they called cribs which I think were in that back area Mm. is what it sounded like everything was saying. Yeah. Like, but it was a little unclear. Yeah. The Montana tourism website that I used for part of my research said that the alley outside the brothel was a pretty gruesome place too, which had its fair share of shootings, stabbings and other violent crime. Seems about right. I think though. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Doesn't seem like the most law-abiding place, so I assume there were no other um, things got out of hand quite often. Oh, yes. By far the most interesting feature to this place, though, has to be the basement, which is complete with tunnels, which have now been sealed off. But they used to connect the, to the other brothels in the red light district, as well as supposedly connecting to the mines themselves for the convenience of the miners who made up most of the patrons. Wait. So they could just, like, walk through these tunnels? Yes. To go from, like, house goes... back to the camp? <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm on my 15-minute break. Guess I gotta be quick, you know? <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so the cost to sleep with one of the sex workers at the Jumas brothel was 50 cents, which the sex workers received about 40% of that. So is that two bits? I guess. Okay. I don't know what a bit entirely is. Neither do I. That's why I was like, two bits for a lady's company. <laughs> we just pretend we know things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also said that these girls were pretty much trapped in the lifestyle and became addicted to drugs and alcohol, which isn't a big shocker to me. Wow. Uh, they, they would also turn a trick every eight minutes or so, according to one of my sources. Yikes. They would literally, yeah, they would just have sex, wash up, and go again to try to make ends meet. Yeah, that sounds much more akin to the like the very common um, like sexual slavery uh, prostitution oh, yeah. that happened a lot in the, the the frontier west, and probably still happens today. I don't really know. Yeah, because they got like like I said, trapped. They didn't have the money to leave, so now they're just kind of stuck doing this. Uh, the girls weren't always treated the best either. There were a lot of them who were underage as well, and no birth control was really used. If a girl did get pregnant, she had to have an abortion, and I don't mean from a doctor. This place has changed hands a lot over the years, and I'm not going to list every owner or every madam, but I will give you some fun facts I found while researching. In 1950, When the building went to Eleanor Knott, the name was changed to the Dumas Hotel, but it was still a brothel in everything but name. Eleanor did end up dying in 1955, so she did not have the place for long. But there is a mystery surrounding her death. Okay. Her cause of death on the death certificate was said to be coronary occlusion, which means that she probably had a heart attack due to a clogged artery. 
But according to the Dumas Hotel's website, there's a lot more evidence to suggest that she ended her own life. Sadly, it doesn't go into detail of what the evidence is, but I do know that she had a suitcase packed and ready to go. Hmm. The story goes that her lover was supposed to meet her at the brothel on that night and she uh, on the night that she died and she like he just never showed, even though they had plans to run away together. And then in a deep depression, she committed suicide. I guess that could make sense for sure. If they have like the packed suitcase and stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Like the suitcase definitely makes me think something. Um, It's also a little weird because the next owner, Bonita Farron was the one who found her body. Hmm. Don't know why, but I just, I don't like that sentence. And the other rumor is that she was murdered. So make of that what you will. Yeah. That seems a little sketchy for sure. Oh Yeah. So Bonita ran the place with her husband until he passed under what sounds like mysterious circumstances. He had a fall at the brothel, and they said that he had been drinking. But on his death certificate, it was written, accident, question mark. (gasps) So who knows what was really going on there? They also have this weird connection to the next owner of the brothel, and I wasn't exactly sure what the website was saying or implying, so I'm just going to read this next part word for word from the website. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, and I quote. One final note on Benita and John. John is listed as a clerk at the Board of Trade in Butte, which is exactly where the final madam, Ruby Garrett, shot and killed her abusive husband, and John was possibly there when Ruby's husband died, end quote. Okay. Yeah, I don't know what evidence they have to support that, but that was from the, the website for the place. So it kind of sounds like the, the hotel has changed hands in some less than savory ways with the unfortunate demise of a couple of owners now. Yes. It's very strange. Um. So Ruby was an interesting character as well because she had previously owned other brothels in the area and went by another name, Hmm. Lee Aragoni. Okay. Like the website had mentioned, she killed her husband at a place called the Board of Trade, which was a local tavern. He was apparently playing cards and she went in and she shot him because apparently he was an abusive bastard. I mean, okay. Yeah, I mean, makes sense. This was in 1959. Uh, she served nine months in prison for his murder, but that was not the end of her jail time. In 81, when prostitution is, you know, very much illegal, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ruby became the victim of a violent robbery where she was pistol whipped. When, yeah, probably in that fucking piss alley. (laughs) (laughs) When in court. Ruby's business was brought up, and there wasn't really a good way to hide what she was doing. This caught the attention of the IRS, and she ended up being arrested for federal tax evasion, but also only served six months. Hmm. Yeah, and she had only gotten away with it up until then due to paying off the local authorities. In 1982, like I said, everyone had finally had enough, and this place was just shut down, and then later in 2012, it was bought at auction. It has again changed hands in those years with more auctions and, like I mentioned in the beginning, is now a museum honoring the seedy past of the Dumas brothel. Last I could find 
there were talks of turning the place into a bed and breakfast as well. So I guess we will see where that goes. I would definitely go to that bed and breakfast. Yeah, for sure. That'd be quite the experience. Oh, yeah. The museum's website also does not shy away from the fact that this place is haunted, which is cool. They actually have like their own like paranormal investigations on the website, mm-hmm. which is fun. Uh, I hate when places are just like, I don't know what you're talking about. When every worker is like, yeah, I quit because ghosts wouldn't stop bothering me. <laughs> anyway, let me tell you about the haunted happenings at the brothel. All right. I'm assuming the evidence that the website was suggesting earlier as to the suicide rumor is that she's probably the most common spirit seen here. And that was Eleanor. There's this spectral figure on the second floor, which is where the madam's room was, which is that of a woman with a suitcase. She's been seen by many people there, and a worker even said that they were closing up for the night And they just saw this suitcase lady walk past her and down the stairs. But when she went to look, she was completely alone in the building. Yeah, she's most commonly seen going down the stairs to the first floor with her suitcase in hand. So, I mean, there's not a lot of uh, real debate over who that might be, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. There's also a story of an artist staying there and just getting this weird inspiration to paint the face of this woman that he hadn't seen before. He did canvas after canvas of a woman in a hat smiling, but kept throwing them away because he wasn't happy with the work. After he left, one of the paintings was recovered by the owner, and it's possible that the face could be that of one of the past madams. They say that when you walk around this place, you just feel off. You're kind of sad and depressed, which may be because of the state Eleanor was in toward the end of her life. The one website that I used as a source kind of shit talk ghost adventures because I guess that they did this place too. Because I guess Zach was blaming the one past owner's drug problems on ghosts. Go figure. Okay. Uh, Cold spots are common around the house as well. And there's a decent amount of EVP people were able to get from here. I never listen to the EVP because I never hear what they want me to hear. See, I love the EVP because I find them so creepy, even though I agree it's hard for me to always hear what people tell me is there, but like I still love to listen to it to see if I do hear it. It definitely is interesting. Like the only one was the one that I played for you that I really heard something because that was clear as day. Mm. Um, so disembodied voices are also common, as well as items such as furniture moving on its own. Uh, that's a quite large item, Eden. <laughs> Yes. So that's a lot of energy that it would take a spirit to move something that big, you know? Yeah, I'm like doors, keys, things like that, but like the armchair. I'm like, um Yeah, and I'm assuming this is probably like heavy old furniture yeah, too. Yeah, to go with like the the feel of the place. Yeah. The lights will also flicker a lot here, which I'm not sure if it's really paranormal. But it could be. It could just be bad wiring as well. So who knows? In photos, people have gotten a lot of orbs as well as shadowy figures, mm. which is just creepy as fuck. And I don't like that. Um, unfortunately, without watching said episode of Ghost Adventures, uh, because I'm not subjecting myself to that again. That's where that's what I have for hauntings here. Hmm. I know that they might not have been the spookiest. 
but I couldn't resist the lore of doing a haunted brothel, nor could I give up all that crazy history surrounding this place. I know. The history is very dark, and I feel like it would make sense for this place to be haunted, given that there's so much misery that happened inside oh, and yeah. behind, behind it in Piss Alley. I'm surprised that yeah, Piss Alley. Yeah, oh my God, that name. Um, I'm surprised. <laughs> it's going to be that, my like, next not... album name is called Piss Alley. It's going to be my band name. It's going to be spoken um, word. And it's all going to be about <laughs> peeing in alleys, guys. Get ready. Great. That's <laughs> what I want to listen to. That, that's like, you know, I have a Pandora radio station about I, peeing in alleys. Alley so, pissing music. I know. Me too. Yes. <laughs> I need my soundtrack to my life. Come on. <laughs> um. But yeah, I'm surprised that it's not more haunted with other spirits, like spirits of some of the prostitutes that work there because their lives were fucking horrible. Well, maybe that's part of it, right? It's like not so much the people who had already suffered there, but the people who had a hand in keeping them there and suffering. Yeah, Those are the ones definitely. who get trapped there. I was like, that's, that's their purgatory. That's their punishment. That would make sense. So what do you think, Nicole? You want to check out a brothel with me? I mean, I'll go to the museum with you. That sounds interesting and history and all that good stuff. Um, I don't know. The dark figures in like the photos, that always unnerves me. And that makes me not want me to do any kind of investigation type thing there, if that makes sense. I don't know. Because, yeah, that's creepy and normally pretty negative in my, you know, experience. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I think it'd probably be a very interesting educational adventure. Oh, yes. Who doesn't want to learn about prostitution at the turn of the century? <laughs> bring the school, bring the whole entire school on a trip, you know. My sources this week were Wikipedia, southwestmt.com for a few articles, dumas-brothel.com, shows.acast.com, and a video from YouTube called Hauntings of the Dumas Brothel on a channel called The Speakeasy. Very cool. Thanks for that story, Eden. Uh, Absolutely. If anyone out there has their own feedback for our stories today or about our podcast in general, they can feel free to write and re rate and review us on the pod catcher of their choice, or you can reach out to us directly. You can shoot us a quick email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also get in touch with us on social media. We are Roadside Horror Show on Facebook and Instagram, and we are Roadside Horror on Twitter. If you just want to passively interact with us, you can do that at our website. You can check out uh, our show at roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. We'd also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and Emassy for our intro and outro music. And, uh, until next time, Roadsters. Creep, creep on, on creep, creep on. on.